Hello and welcome to this episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I'm lucky enough to be chatting with performer, writer and comedian Marcus Birdman. So, hey, Marcus, it's great to be chatting with Hello. you today. And you, nice to speak to you. Fantastic. So you're an Essex boy. I don't mean that in a, in a horrible way. But is, is, that, is, that, is that where you grew up? Sort of. I grew up, well, I grew up in a place called Bishop Stortford, which is near Stansted Airport, which oh, yeah. is, it's kind of weird because it's uh, half in Essex and half in Hertfordshire. So it, it really has a sort of, um, it's quite a split personality. Half of it is quite posh and half of it is really quite kind of um, rough, I suppose. Um, so my actual house was in Hertfordshire, but then, you know, half of, or if not, that's more of the places that I would hang out where were actually technically Essex, but I've moved subsequently further into deepest Essex, which I, I now live in South End. So, um, which is about as Essex as you can get. I don't know. It's very touristy, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, well, I live in Leon Sea. I don't know. Do you know that? Uh, vaguely. I've got, I think I've got a friend there. So, it's kind uh, of the nice bit. It's the nice bit of South End, because um, some of South End it isn't, uh, and some of it is. And anyway, Lee and Lee's one of the nice bits. And um, so, I mean, as I speak to you, you know, if I look over there, I I look straight out to sea. So that's that's lovely. The lights good here, and I'm you know I enjoy. I have a dog, and I take him for a walk each morning on the beach, and that's very pleasant. Um, very nice. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, what memories do you have of your your childhood? Were you from a from a big family? Well, I don't know actually. My, so I've got three. I've, I've got a brother and two sisters. So uh-huh. I suppose not a small family. Um, my father was in the navy and also a school chaplain. He was a he, you know, he was a vicar and chaplain and various things. But um, so I was brought up in a very religious family. Right. Um, I suppose um, difficult to say. I mean, I think it's. I always have said this before, but I didn't. You know, I didn't feel like we had it rammed down our throats in a very sort of fire and brimstone. He wasn't that sort of character. Yeah, but yeah. I think I was about 14 before I realised that not everybody's father was a vicar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just sort of part of the furniture, you know, like it wasn't it wasn't sort of um, do you believe in God? Question mark. It was like, of course you believe in God, you know. Um, so it really uh, only in. In later life, have I sort of in re-examining that, have I sort of seen how how religious that is in comparison to to other people's experience? I always quite envy people who who aren't brought up in a religious family. Really, I've got lots of hang-ups. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, were you, were you a confident kid? You know, coming from that kind of background. Yes and no. I was really confident. You know, I think I probably he sounds loftily have the sort of ideal and perfect kind of artistic temperament, which is on the one hand thinking I'm sort of Promethean and a genius. And on the other hand, thinking I'm useless and rubbish and nobody should be interested in what I have to say. And I think that that sort of, it's that doubt and that dichotomy added with ego and kind of, uh, if the world should shut up and listen to me, it would be a better place. Sort of, I think that creates a sort of, uh, it, it, it certainly just creates a lot of the kind of art that I kind of like to look at anyway, or, or watch or listen to. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what did you, what were your kind of aspirations? What did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have any kind of, any idea about what you were going to, what you were going to do when you left school? I always wanted to be an artist, actually, like a visual artist. So I was always, I was very keen on, on art at school and uh, I enjoyed that. And I went to art college. Well, 
so that was my sort of yeah that was absolutely and unquestionably the thing I wanted to do um and then whilst also probably secretly harboring a desire to be a rock star (laughs) so I was in sort of I used to play drums at the bass a little bit um, and then so I was in bands when I was at art college which is a very art college thing to do and enjoyed that and I think there got more of a taste performing so to go back to your earlier question I I was confident in my own skills and I was very confident with say things like artwork I was very sporty I was confident of that I was never very socially confident I think I was quite socially awkward well I think that I, I, I was and still am to an extent socially awkward and uh which I think is a trait that runs through quite a few stand-ups I think that sort of you know you see stand-ups on stage and they seem so at ease with themselves and then you see them off stage and they're social pillocks <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, I, I I hope I'm not a social pillock but I do certainly um kind of adhere to that I'm definitely not the life and soul of the party you know so so um so yeah so I I kind of I got a taste, I suppose, for doing to, for doing for performing when I was at art college, but still wanted to be doing art. I would use a lot of words in my artwork. I was very interested in graffiti and did bits of graffiti. Very interested in things like hieroglyphics because they had writing. I like the idea of. See, I think, and it's interesting to examine this in retrospect because I've ended up being, you know, more more of a spoken word person than a visual person. Although I still do that. Um, that always I wrote and always I would use one of the things I found difficult with with visual art is that it was often a bit oblique or a bit um it didn't say what it meant or or the 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 meaning was a little obfuscation going on like oh if you need to ask you'll never know some pretension there you know and and one of the things that attracted me to stand up is it's there's none of that it's like it, it has by definition to be understood by you know the drunkest moron in the room so you cannot be overly flowery with it and yeah. I liked that I like that aspect of stand-up and I think I like that going back to when I was art college rather than sort of just painting a picture that was supposed to speak a thousand words I'd actually write out some of the quotes or some of the things meanings that I was trying to put across actually use that as as narrative and also use it as, as as a decorative thing. So I think it was kind of, you know, I'm still using, and I'm still using words to these days. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you went to art college. So what was the, what was the goal? What did you end up doing when you left, uh, when you left art college? Well, I think, as I say, the goal was to be an artist and secondarily to avoid ever getting a proper job. Which, you know, <laughs> which I say, you know, and I say that facetiously, but I also say that as a sort of badge of honour. You know, I'm, I'm like, I've never had, I've had a proper, what one would describe as a proper job for about 18, less than 18 months of my entire, you know, entire adult life. Yeah. And that people talk about kind of, oh, success and making it. And you go, well, no, I'm, <laughs> that's success to me, you know, just avoiding getting a proper job doing something that I, I you know, I'm, 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 I'm in a creative industry. I, I, I'm not doing the thing that I expected in the sense of I'm a fine artist in, in, in the gallery, but yeah. I'm still, I very much consider stand up to be an art, you know, um, and an art form. And I'm still expressing myself, man. And uh, I, so I, that was, that was always the aim. You know, I think, you know, there was definitely a sort of harboring a uh, world domination and superstardom. Um, 
of which I've completely changed my opinion, interestingly. <laughs> you know, now that I've met famous people and know yeah. famous people and been beside famous people, and um, I don't want to be famous at all. It looks awful. You know, you want to be a, you want to be the mate of someone famous, Paula. That's yes. I mean, you, you, that's yeah. you get all the benefits. Like <laughs> you know, you walk straight into that restaurant, you get the free drinks, all of that. But then you don't have to face off the idiots. Like, do you know what? I was in a bar, so you'll know Des Bishop, um, yes, um, who was a friend of mine, and we we were doing a gig in Galway, and he, you know, he was just getting. He was take, people would go get, you know get, have a selfie, have a selfie, and he was being really gracious, and then. It just kind of had enough, you know, like because 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 it was like after the thousandth time people yeah. asking him, you know, one sort of like bloke was like, "Oh, you're oh, Des, you think you're too good to speak to us," and it really turned into a really like aggressive, you know, this is going to be a fight, you know, yeah. like and um, and and I just thought, you know, well, of course, you know, I, I understand that, you know, for for the, for the person coming to ask for the autograph or the selfie. He hasn't been there for the last hour while Des has increasingly got yeah. more and more hassle off drunker and drunker people. He just goes, can I have a selfie? And Des is a bit offish and and um and he thinks Des is a is a douchebag, yeah. you know. Yeah. And then but but like but but you end up in this kind of this awful situation that's I'm not blaming anyone. I'm certainly not blaming Des because I saw the lead up to it. He was not in the wrong. Um the guy was extremely aggressive and flipped, you know, and was drunk. But I was like, I don't, I don't God, I don't want that. I wouldn't mind the money. I wouldn't mind the green lighting of artistic projects, you know, very much so much, so many, I mean, I've tried to get things off the ground, radio programs and whatnot. And you go, that's a, that's a great idea, but we need Eamon Holmes to be in it or something, you know, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is about rock climbing, you know, but, um, um, but, you know, there's that sort of, it needs to be a famous celebrity person doing it. But um, so that's frustrating. So I wouldn't mind that, but to be actually famous, nah, I wouldn't want that. Yeah, I suppose there's different levels, isn't there? You know, in the, looking at comedians, there's different levels of fame. Yeah. You know, your yeah, Michael McIntyre's and your, you true. know, as that's you say, true. your Des Bishops and uh, yeah. those guys. I mean, I've just been supporting Jason Manford and he's oh, wow. proper famous, you know, like, and it's kind of, he's that level. Whereas if you're sort of, you know, I, I sort of like that kind of uh, maybe someone like... Uh, I even like someone like sort of maybe not Stuart Lee because he's actually got a bit famous uh, now, but maybe his wife Bridget. You know, you kind of like who, who's kind of people really know her and really respect her. Yeah, yeah. But she could walk down the street and probably not get grief. You know, get hassled. Yeah, that that'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, how did the actual break into comedy happen? Um, I mean, I, I'm assuming that you don't just wake wake up one day and say, right, I'm going to get on a stage and I'm going to do stand up. Yeah. So I think it it goes back to being on stage in a band, I was never the, I mean, I did sort of bits of singing slash rapping, he says uh, apologetically. Um, <laughs> um, I always wrote, like I think my, you know, my mum was an English teacher. I think she obviously had a fascination with kind of English language and literature and yeah, stuff, yeah. which I feel I've inherited. Um, I always wrote, always wrote poems, little, little song lyrics. And I, I would, the band I was in, I wasn't a singer, but I would often write the lyrics. And from that, I got into writing kind of poetry and spoken word stuff. And I started doing like poetry graffiti, really, to go again. I was like, so rather than like, you know, bombing or, or what you would go, call sort of graffiti wild style imagery, I was writing little poems um, and trying to make them funny, I suppose. And then I started doing performance poetry. And from that, 
while I was doing that, and I kind of got, I got quite good at that, really. I, I, you, I tell you what, Paula, you're talking to Glastonbury Slam champion, 1998. Wow. <laughs> I'm not worthy. <laughs> Over heady heights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I enjoyed that, but I often found it was a very kind of earnest, and also you just couldn't make any money out of it because there's no living to be made in there. Yeah. And and a friend of a, my, well, my, my, the mother of my child, he says rather sort of loftily, um, she at the time was best friends with a comedy producer right and she said yeah I think you could do stand-up um you should have a go and I was like you know no way I not 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 Nelly you know too too far too whatever I don't know yeah. I mean I, partly I just I didn't I didn't know I also assumed stand-up was sort of just a bit too laddie and a bit too macho to be interested in it wasn't arty enough for me really yeah um, yeah and I, and I don't I, I say that with ignorance not I don't mean that now um and it didn't occur to me. It just seemed too hardcore. And I, and I said, no. And, I, and then she said, well, I'll sort of unbeknownst to me, she entered me into one of the new act competitions. Oh, God. I was like, well, all right, I don't want to be a bottler. I'll do it. It will be embarrassing, but I'll do it. And I ended up getting into the final, which was in Edinburgh, which was great. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't win because I was doing poetry. I, I very much sort of like, I sort of say it was like, it was a bit like rocking up to a kind of Iron Maiden gig and doing jazz. You know, it was a kind of like people kind of looked at me going, well, I mean, he seems to know what he's doing, but, but I, I, don't know, I don't know why he's doing it. You know, like so, so it wasn't like I was booed off or like had a bad experience. In fact, I had a good experience, but I could tell that I was, you know, I was in the wrong. I wasn't doing the right thing. I needed to write jokes. If I, but um, then I'd meet comedians there in Edinburgh. And also a few comedians were coming over and doing performance poetry and they were going, oh, oh no, you can, you know, you can make a living out of stand up. It's like, I'm, I, this is all I do. I'm, I'm, I make a living. And I, having scrabbled around, you know, trying to get paintings in exhibitions, trying to get poetry paid for that, trying to do artwork and, and bands and stuff that never, ever turned much of a dollar. Suddenly I've got people telling me, you know, I make a living out of yeah. this art form. I didn't know. I didn't know anyone else. You know, I you know I was you know, I knew people from art college, artists, dancers, poets. No one I knew made any money out of it. They were all waiting tables or or, or teaching. You know, whatever. Um, and here, 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 I got. I, I meet. I meet comics, and they're going. This is my. I make a living. You know. So I thought the sort of scales came off my eyes really. So that that's. Yeah. So it's really a case of sort of. I just needed to work out how to write stand up. So I did a stand up course. And that was a good sort of way of just getting my head around what was a bit more required, sort of, uh, yeah. uh, sort of um, stylistically, perhaps. Um, yeah. So that's how that's, that's a rather long, circuitous route into doing it. Yeah. Um, I'm always kind of, you know, curious as to how do you find your style? Do you know what I mean? Obviously, seeing what you do on stage is totally yeah. different to other people. How do you find mm. your direction, your niche kind of thing? Uh it's interesting this because I, I funny enough because I teach a bit of stand up as well and yeah. um, that's an interesting question because I think and, and again this is going to sound pretty wanky but I, I almost it finds you I think you start so when I started I was yeah. like I, I was such a sort of fan of Eddie Izzard and sort of the Boosh the very surreal sort of guys like that you know sort of Dan Antopolsky yes. uh, Simon Munnery those kind of guys I, I love that surreal. Yeah. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I assumed I would do. Mm. And I suppose for a while I, I did do that. And I did an okay version of it because I got sort of 
bookings. But I had a disastrous Edinburgh. Maybe I was about three years into doing comedy where it just, it just was so bad. And I kind of, I had a lot of surreal bits. And in order to make an Edinburgh show, I'd sort of linked the surreal bits. And those seemed to be the only bits that worked in the show. And I think the, the, the links were kind of said in like normal time, you know, yeah. kind of like I was making sense in the, yeah. in the link of going, well, so the reason I've managed to get from talking about skeletons playing, you know, ice hockey to horses painting the Eiffel Tower, like, they didn't get the skeletons playing ice hockey and they didn't really get the, the horses painting the Eiffel Tower, but they sort of got the logical link between the two. And I was kind of going, I think I actually need to be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the, the sort of just talk normally you know and I, and I, so that was a quite a revelation so I, I think over I just sort of I had a notion of how what I thought I wanted to be which like anyone doing any art for you know you 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 start a band and you want to sound like the Rolling Stones and that's fine to be it's fine to sound a bit like the Rolling Stones it's certainly fine to be inspired by the Rolling Stones but you yeah. are not the Rolling Stones so if you pretend to be the Rolling Stones you're only going to be a poor version of it. You have to find, yeah. and people talk about this and no doubt your other guests have said this phrase, finding your own voice. Yeah. And, uh, is that, is that phrase? and I think, as I say, it's sort of what I've done, what I encourage my students to do is to sort of start to tell me about you. I, I like comedy where you, where someone betrays who they are on stage, you know, by, and that's not to say that that's the best kind of comedy because I, there's many a comedian, Tim Vine is an example, who I think, yeah you know, does by definition talk rubbish. <laughs> Milton Jones is another one who I, I just went to see Milton Jones's show. It's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, by definition, and I would say, I don't, I, I say that not as a criticism. I would say that to their faces. Yeah. They are talking nonsense. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's a fantastic art form, but it doesn't work for me. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't do that well. I'm not that kind of comedian. So I have to find something else it's sort of almost as I say it almost finds you he says he says again rather loftily I suppose it's one of those things that you have to find your own path do you know what I mean you don't yeah. want to be you don't want to be a cover band of you know exactly a, no. a, a Rolling Stones cover band you want to be your own thing you want to be your own person exactly yeah. and I think if you you know the more you get to I, I always think that the there's a theory about comedy which I sort of half buy and and you've probably heard this again, it's like that actually audiences don't necessarily respond to your jokes. They respond to how you deliver your jokes. Yeah, yeah. So you can have golden jokes and the audience don't respond um, because they're not enjoying, you know, it's not about the material. I think it's about your enjoyment of being you on stage doing the jokes, really. And, um, and I think, so, so therefore the audience aren't laughing at the brilliant and punchline. They're laughing at you enjoying delivering it do you, do you see what I mean and I think that yeah probably an, a, an, any artist whether they're painting dancing doing comedy when they start to actually show the audience their heart and soul as opposed to their version of the Rolling Stones yeah um they start to I think an audience starts to respond to them because an audience recognizes as long as it's not dreadfully delivered as long as it's delivered with a certain amount of aplomb or indeed a great deal of aplomb. Yeah. I think an audience recognises the generosity of an, of an artist doing that. And so that's certainly the, 
so I think, and then you get authenticity because, of course, nobody's going to do Marcus Birdman better than Marcus Birdman. Exactly. So, you know, Eddie Izzard is going to do a better version of Eddie Izzard than Marcus Birdman. So why am I trying to be Eddie Izzard? And, and Eddie Izzard cannot do Marcus Birdman. So, so I'm, if I really try and be me, I will be by definition unique. I will be by definition not like anyone else. Yeah. And I will be by definition, I think, uh, creating something hopefully beautiful, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, I think like someone like Harry Hill, is a prime mm. example of Absolutely. you know carving his own niche. You know he's yeah. very he's very animated and very physical, and yeah. you can't you couldn't expect him just as you know he does do a little bit of stand up. But I mean he's very yeah. I don't I don't even know how. I'd, <laughs> how no, I agree. I agree. I, like, I, I, I supported Noel Fielding very early on in my incarnation and in relatively in his. I suppose, yeah, in sort of the early noughties. and and he he is like that. You know he is he's like. He's off with the fairies, you know. <laughs> he, 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 th- those clothes that he's wearing on stage, he doesn't, he doesn't get changed in the dressing room, and he's wearing a tracksuit and, and a pair of normal slacks. You know, he wears the cowboy hat and the and the day glow, you know, flipping kimono. So it makes sense that he is that sort of like sort of you know I- idiot savant on stage. And I said again, I said that with respect. It's like yeah. a childlike person because he is like that he's there's no pretension in what he's doing he is off with the fairies and arty farty and wants to wear something ludicrous that's what he is you know so it makes sense for him to do it I'm not so it doesn't make so much sense for me to do that sort of thing you know but I'm a little bit arty so I can wear certain things but 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 um I don't need to try too hard to be left of center is maybe my point I think yeah yeah I already am so actually just try and be me yeah. So, I mean, you're one of Britain's most travelled comedians. You've gigged mm. all, literally all over the world. So, I mean, do you find that comedy travels well? So say you're doing a gig in, I don't know, Lewisham, and then you go to, I don't know, India. <laughs> how, it, does, it, it, how does it, comedy it, it, travel? Honestly, <laughs> it travels better, to be honest with you. I, 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 British audiences are the worst audiences in the world. They're so aggressive. <laughs> they're, so, they're so contrary they're so drunk and you know I've said this before it's like and Irish audiences as well you know they're very yeah. similar but without yeah. with probably less aggression but they're still you know if you think you can do a gig in Ireland without interruption you are out of your mind you know they because I think I think particularly like Ireland have a more of a sort of stronger sense of storytelling tradition yeah you are not going to get through your routine without someone <laughs> buying in and so you better get used to it uh and the same with you know the same with Britain it's just but people usually butt in with an aggressive aspect yeah, to it yeah. and I think so so people now especially when you've got things like kind of Netflix and whatnot there isn't a place you can go where people haven't heard of Monty Python Blackadder The yeah. Office yeah etc 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 so so everybody gets the British act the British sense of humor I think and Pete audiences are less awful the further you get away from England. <laughs> <laughs> so it travels fine, uh, you know, and you go to kind of, um, I mean, I say you go to something like Australia, and of course, I mean, A, there's a lot of expats there. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Also, but, but, and, but and a lot of them, if they're not expats, they've got English or British heritage. So they get it all. I think, you know, you have to be a bit um, judicious that you don't mention some very obscure sort of... Um, you know, a, a tube destination on the underground or yeah, something. But yeah. you know, that, that so much is it would be obvious, you know. Um, but they, they get it all. And uh, honestly, I prefer gigging abroad um, 
people and audiences are nicer. <laughs> that's gonna cause that's gonna cause me trouble. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, as I said, you've you've performed everywhere. So I mean, mm. have you performed in any weird place, weird venues, weird weird places? You must have performed in a few. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've like on top of a bus, <laughs> you know, um, in a, in a strip joint just after the strippers in a casino in South Africa. Um, <laughs> behind a bar in a strip joint with with like the kind of with the bar still serving in front of the audience. Um, where else? Oh, um, this summer I was at a race course at a drive-in comedy show where the audiences were still in their cars and they they honked and flashed their lights in appreciation. Well, it was very difficult to tell whether it was appreciation or uh, or. Uh, they might have been heckling. Who knows? <laughs> so, so some quite weird places. Wow. Um, some weird, weird destinations. Pakistan, you know, um, springs to mind of a place I would, you know, never lightly go to on my own merits. American right. American Navy bases, you know, sort of places that you wouldn't wouldn't normally <laughs> normally go to and necessarily go back to. Um, so yeah, lots of but that's you know that's fantastic. I, I, part of my attraction to it is that you know I love traveling and I love kind of going around and this has become part of my work to go and get sort of paid to go and travel is absolutely wonderful and I don't take that for granted. Yeah, and also I think it you know it puts you not as a tourist as well. You know you yeah, go yeah, and you, yeah. you know you've, you you meet people on the ground and that's always better, isn't it? If you go to a, any place you go and visit. If you don't know anyone there, you're always going to end up in the tourist beach, the tourist restaurant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you know someone who lives there or works there, they go, hey, you don't want to go to that beach. You want to go to yeah. uh, that beach. You want to go to that bar. And, you know, say if I came to visit you in Dublin, it's like I'm going to end up in Temple Bar because I don't really know anyone. <laughs> but, but you do <laughs> know what I mean? You're going to, you don't want to go to Temple Bar. It's don't go to Temple Bar, no. Exactly, exactly. You know, um, you go, I know exactly the kind of bar we should go to and, and because you know it. So, so that's a nice aspect of, of working abroad as well, you know. So, so, um, so yeah, you know, it's, it, that's terrific. The only place I haven't been is America, really. To, yeah. To, um, I haven't really been there. It's weird how that doesn't... There's not many Americans work in the UK circuit or indeed the international circuit. And vice versa, you know, you got um, loads of Australians are, are in yeah. this country, yeah. all, and yeah. indeed, you know, and indeed yours and on your circuit, and vice versa, Canadians, people from the kind of Far East, people from from sort of Europe and Scandinavia, lots of to and froing and exchange, but very, very, I know very few. I think I maybe like a half a dozen comics who worked in North America, you know, like in America rather than more, you know, lots in Canada, but. America, if they've been, they maybe they've done it an open spot while they were on holiday in New York, but actually gone and yeah. gone and got paid work. And same, hardly any Americans coming here. So, which is I don't know, weird, weird one. Yeah, I mean, it's like you, sometimes you'll see people turning up on like Conan and you know Jimmy Kimmel and all these these American chat shows. Yeah, and yeah. you're just like they don't understand <laughs> the Americans just don't get. I don't know whether it's just there's that a could different, be the case as well. There could be the case. sensibility of, yeah. you know, what's fun. Obviously, what's funny in America is going to be totally. It, well, I mean, that, it, that's a very interesting point. And I agree with you. I agree that I think there's a big difference in humour, the stand up. And American stand up leaves me cold, to be honest with you. Mm. And in a way that maybe British stand up leaves Americans cold. And there's maybe very few, there's not a lot of 
backwards and forwards and that, that might be literally because we don't find each other very funny but then but then you look at some of the best sort of comedy sitcoms yeah. and they're american so you sort of go yeah. and we we you know we enjoy curb your enthusiasm and all those kind of things um you know it's always sunny in philadelphia yada 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 we love them they're really really we certainly get that sense of humor so, so it's an odd one isn't it like kind of go we like that and indeed the same same with americans you know they love the office so so it's, it's a weird why this is a real oversimplification but i think the american comedy seems to often be bigging themselves up and sort of going i'm great aren't puerto rican <laughs> yeah lovely weird. yeah um, uh, you know or aren't, aren't kind of the, the french people strange um and <laughs> And it seems to be a little bit like sort of grandstanding and, and slightly ego driven. And that's especially with the sort of Def Jam kind of tradition. And well, you know, and look at Dave Chappelle as an, as an example oh, of kind well, of, yeah. you know, <laughs> that's a whole different kind of words. But, that, but, yeah. um, but the, certainly I think it's that style of punching down slightly. Whereas British audience or British comics rather is very much kind of, I'm an idiot. You know, I, I'm useless in bed. I can't keep down a job. I don't understand Mexicans. It's not Mexicans are idiots. It's, it's the other way around. And I think maybe for a, the British don't really like a sort of bragger. It's interesting when you get American comics coming to UK, as sometimes they do, or sometimes they more do in a, they come to sort of like Edinburgh maybe more for festivals. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they will go, you know, they'll, I've emceed these shows and they'll go, right, you must mention I was on Conan. You must mention I'm in three seasons of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And, I, and I'm like, I, the Brits are like, I mean, I can, but they will hate you for it. <laughs> you know, you are far better off me not telling them that because, you know, because they immediately walk on and British audience think, well, who's this wanker? Um, <laughs> who does he think he is? <laughs> oh, it's Jimmy Kimmel, you know. So, um, you know, so it's a, it's a, it's a weird one. Yeah, yeah weird I mean, it's, I've spoken to other comedians about the whole character comedy thing. Character comedy in the UK is huge, huge, right. huge, huge. But then, you, you you know, over in America, they're totally, they're like, what is this person doing? <laughs> Dressing up what as an old man. Dressed up you know? as, yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. That's interesting. So uh, who do you think, who's doing character comedy in Britain then? Well, but, I mean, you've uh, got like the, the John Shuttleworths, uh, the, sure. like, the, the yeah. Count Arthur Strong. Yeah. Um, you know, all these kind of guys that are, they're basically a character. It's like a... You know, the, the Americans just don't seem to get it. And obviously, yeah, it's a very it's a very British thing. And you wonder whether it's it kind of harks back to like music hall. You it know, it's too much, isn't it? Yeah. Other sort of uh, or um, um, Python. Yeah. In, in yeah. 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 Pretending to be. Yeah. Again, you know, Harry Enfield, as, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Milton Jones, as was mentioned yeah. earlier, pretty much Vic and Bob, those kind of guys, you know, yeah. and um the bush to an extent a yeah. kind of char character the character acts yeah in and perhaps in that sort of audible tradition rather than mm. um it's interesting i think that there was a great i can't remember where i read this but it was basically i think vic and or bob talking about the first time they went to do just for laughs and they were describing a routine that they do where they bring on a carpet like a really long roll of carpet <laughs> one end of you know so they're both about sort of 15 feet away from each other and exactly you're you know you're laughing and I'm yeah. laughing just just at the very thought of it yeah um yeah. and they said to silence 
they did this routine where they're holding a carpet roll for 15, 20 minutes or whatever with, with, with a load of North Americans just going, what the blazes yeah, are you Yeah, there was doing? a song and everything. There was a song and everything that went with it. <laughs> everything. Yeah. And, you know, and you could just imagine, you know, Vic will have on a kind of, a, a kind of wig that's about four foot tall and some <laughs> shoes that are about three foot long. And, and so will Bob, you know, and they'll be talking nonsense and if you know you're laughing and I'm laughing because we would find that sort of thing funny and it's a brilliant I can't I can't remember what it was it's, I think it's like a it was an interview or whatever but it was like you can just go going I can see how that would have been utterly a car crash you know <laughs> yeah I don't know whether it was Montreux it was the Montreux festival It'll be Montreux, yeah, they Montreux, were doing yeah. and just just said they would they looked out and the the they were just like <laughs> the audience was like, "What? <laughs> what is what going doing? on? What yeah, are these what are guys doing? doing? You know, just yeah. totally, totally blank, yeah. and not understanding. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> in that respect, you're kind of like comedy is a very, it's a very fine line. You know, between yeah. between countries, say, you know, and uh, yeah. the way people react. To- I think they can be, especially maybe if you do an act like that, which is sort of really quite. You know, I mean, you know, an act, an act like Vic and Bob or Harry Hill, it's quite marmite in this country as well. You know, whilst, whilst oh, yeah. there is a lot of people who would love those kind of guys, there's also a lot of people to, to whom Vic and Bob or Harry Hill or the Boosh or Eddie Izzard or whatever or leave absolutely cold, isn't it, really? Um, yeah. So oh, we, we don't like those people. No, <laughs> we don't like those people. <laughs> so what's your writing process? For your stand-up, uh, is there a kind of, is there a plan? I'm assuming that you know you you write a lot beforehand, and you you know you yeah. spend certain yeah. periods of time putting stuff together. Do you carry a notebook around? I mean, I always carry a notebook around. I mean, I think that's key. Oh, I mean, because also I tell my students always to have a notebook, so I better say this on public record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always have a notebook, or um, I mean, I suppose now I've got my phone that I can you can put voice notes. Yeah, so, yeah. Although I'm, I, I'm still sort of a bit old school about this, and been like something to my mind about the process of writing. Plus, I always, I like, actually like the act of writing. You know, yeah. be that from an art school point of view. My, I like my handwriting. I like it. I like putting, particularly a pencil on a piece of paper. So I always, I just try and, I try and write down anything that I think could have some legs as an idea. And now, of course. You know, ninety-five percent of that, if not even more, is is rubbish. Yeah. You know, when you look back on it, uh, certainly maybe immediately. But I think I I like that idea of the sort of pyramid, like of kind of like this. The, but the top one percent, even if it's one percent or half a percent, is you know, if the bottom is massive, then the one percent of the massive will be at least something. Whereas if you don't write too much, the one percent of that is nothing. So I was like, yeah. always write it down. Always write it down, even if it's like. So it might be an idea. It might be a. It might be a premise. It might be. I mean, give an example. I suppose even just seeing someone doing something, and you're like, oh, seeing someone do something. So I think, <laughs> you know, without, I would obviously I would never steal someone's writing. Yeah. But yeah. but um but but um someone might do something physically yeah. or or set up a turn of phrase that I would go. That's the way for me to to say that. You know, and I said, so I, so I don't get me wrong, I'm not stealing the joke, but I might, yeah. I might steal a turn of phrase. I yeah. might steal a turn of phrase off an advert or a film. Um, certainly not just comedy. I, I'm not a big, I'm not a big student of comedy, particularly. I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't come into comedy wanting to be a comedian, as I mentioned earlier. You know, yeah. I, I was like, as some people do, you know, they wanted to be comedians since they were seven. I wanted to be an artist. I'm not a big student of stand-up. Uh, 
but I get, you know, song lyrics a lot of, you know, and uh, even, even the, I'm a big fan of rhythm and meter. Yeah, um, yeah. I use it a lot in my, in my writing. Maybe it's because I'm an ex-drummer and I, I really like rap. I come mm-hmm. from a, a sort of, I enjoy that and doing performance poetry that I rhymed it. So it was a sort of rap element to it. I've always enjoyed rhythm and meter. And someone might just say something. It might be from a Eminem rap song. And I'm just yeah. like, I really like the way that goes. So I wouldn't use those words at all. I'll put my own words in, but I would use the meter of that structure. Yeah. Uh, sorry, the meter yeah. of that of that sentence or the structure of that sentence. So I use that sort of stylistically, I think. Lots of my, really a lot of my comedy is based on my real experiences. You know, hmm. I would say hardly anything that I say isn't true. Uh, it might be embellished. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've got a lot of routines about sort of my daughter. I've got a lot of routines because I have a daughter. I've got a lot of routines about religion because of my father. I have... Um, I'm a stroke survivor so I've got a lot of stuff about strokes and it might go off at a tangent and I might be take some poetic license with it but I certainly base it in my true experiences I mean one of the things you know and again I'm no doubt other comics will have said a similar thing one of the good things about comedy is anytime something disastrous happens you know you crash your car you you have a disastrous one night stand you lose your wallet. It doesn't take long for a comedian to go, there's a routine in this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, the, the more embarrassing, the more disastrous, the more, you know, cretinous, the better. I like that. You know, I've, I've done some hapless and stupid things um, and I think they're funny to talk about. And so I kind of tr- try as, I try to talk about that as much as possible. So that is often the springboard of uh, to to my routines is kind of my personal experience and then but it's a very much a sort of hodgepodge from a lot of different things I, I do spend a lot of time sitting down and writing yeah yeah and then and I'm quite good at kind of going like I'm, I'm at my desk at nine o'clock and I write from nine till eleven and I'm doing two hours and that's it every day and then I'm I have and that's good. And then, and I call it you because there's a discipline to that. There's yeah, a sort yeah. of formal. Um, and then after a while, I end up clock watching and going, oh, is it, is it, is it midday yet? Can I finish? And, and that sort of, I think that runs its test. And then I'm a big, also a big fan of kind of slightly navel gazing and slightly yeah. sort of, if I want to read a book, I'll read a book. If I want to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, I'll watch Curb Your Enthusiasm because I get inspiration from that and kind of, but then after maybe a, a little period of doing that, you sort of go, you know, is sitting down and watching my fourth hour of Kerber enthusiasm really research, Marcus, or am I just being a lazy sod? You know, and I kind of go, be honest. And then it's time to go back to sort of, I'm at my desk at nine o'clock writing, you know. Um, yeah. And, uh, and edit, edit, edit as well. That's the other thing I kind of I have ideas. I often, I'll have an idea where I've, I've taken the, the meter and the rhyme off, a, off an Eminem rap. Yeah. I've also got another idea where... I think it would be interesting to talk about buying my daughter her first bra, you know? And then it kind of goes, that seems like an interesting premise, but I don't have anything else to say about it. I just think that's kind of, that this seems silly, you know? So there's got to be something there. And then I'll kind of go, ah, like I might, if I sort of wedge those two things together, somehow there's, I, I feel like maybe I'm rapping while I'm doing it, or maybe we, she's rapping while I'm doing it, or maybe, you know, there's like, 
uh, Eminem's done a song about bras, or there's some sort of <laughs> some way. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I am literally talking shit, but yeah, yeah, you see, yeah. kind of, 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 of almost like. Do you know the term coaching a car? Well, they'll take one front of one car and front of a totally different car, and they'll sort of oh yeah back them together yeah to to create a different hybrid kind of what the hell is that sort of thing. I, I'm I'm a big fan of sort of taking a little bit of that and a little a little ingredient of this and and sort of going really are you putting the blancmange <laughs> on your chicken and putting that and roasting that and I'm kind of like yeah because I think it might be sort of interesting you know. And nine times out of ten, it's a disaster. But sometimes you end up with a kind of blancmange cooked chicken that's really <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of like that's that's kind of interesting to me, you know. So so it is a yeah. very much. You've really got a feel for children of comedians, though, haven't you? I mean, they... oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. my poor daughter. <laughs> I mean, so much of so much of my because so, because we because I, I like I did I I I'm, I'm, this is an absolute name drop, but I'm going to because I played the Palladium. A, yeah, a few yeah. Months sporting Jason Manford and I was really obviously very proud and my daughter I invited my daughter to come so uh, along with other sort of friends of mine and we were and a lot of my material because she was there as well I thought I'm going to do that material (laughs) and there is that as I mentioned earlier there's a story about the first time I bought her a bra you know And, and of course then after the event there's a sort of meet and greet upstairs in the bar and and of course I'm standing next to someone who's clearly my daughter. And so everybody is like, <laughs> so that story is about you. And so, so the poor, you know, and of course she's 16 at the moment and just, and so, so 16 and full of like embarrassment about everything. She just wants to sort of, I think, I think, I mean, I may be absolutely kind of ridiculously and, and misguidedly blowing my own trumpet. Whilst I think she's embarrassed, understandably, I think there's a little, I hope there's a little bit of her, there's a little bit kind of pleased that, She's mentioned. <laughs> I don't know. That really might be rubbish. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure she's proud. I'm sure she's proud of my dad playing the Palladium. You know. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if she is or if she isn't, but, um, but um, <laughs> they don't care at that age, do they? <laughs> not really. I think. I think. I couldn't quite reasonably. I think everything I do is is just highly embarrassing and highly uncool to her. I mean, because you know, I hear other people say to me. Oh, your daughter must think you're really cool because you're a comedian. She's like, you're out of your mind. She, she thinks I'm an idiot. And I don't mean a good idiot, like a clowning idiot. She just thinks I'm an absolute burp. She doesn't think it's cool at all, you know. Um, and uh, there was a really brilliant Freddie Flint. I think Freddie Flint was, you know, the cricketer Freddie Flint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was on, I think it was Desert Island Discs or something. And he had the same thing. His, he was quizzed about his son, who was like 12 or 13, now starting to play cricket. And they... The interviewer was like, "Oh, so do you do you take him to play cricket practice and give him some guidance?" He was like, "I used to, but you know, he's like, I'd take him to the nets, and I'd be saying to him, look, you need to kind of put your more weight on your front foot or whatever it is.'" And 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 his son would be like going, "So yeah, but you know, Mr. Smith says I should be doing X, Y, and Z." And 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 Freddie was like, "Who's Mr. Smith?" And he's like, he's my school PE teacher, you know. And so, and, and Freddie Flint was going, I'm only the most decorated <laughs> cricketer, English cricketer of all time, you know. And but my son just can't hear it, you know, and uh, and uh, just thinks I'm an idiot. And so I so I think there's probably an element of that with my daughter. But yeah, yeah, you've got to feel sorry for the for the for the children of comics. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to mention it. So a few years ago, you had a you had a stroke. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm guessing it changed your whole perspective on life as, as it would. So has it changed your 
has it changed your comedy at all? I suppose you, yeah. you, you kind of you can incorporate into your routines having experienced it firsthand. Well, so there's two stories. I actually, I've actually had two strokes and one wasn't that one was about five or six months ago. Um, so the second one I would I, I wrote a lot of stuff about and then as it's sort of it wasn't too bad the first stroke um yeah. this one's a bit more debilitating I've lost half half my eyesight and also I suppose it's a bit more current uh, my balance is quite poor so so the most immediate effect now is that I have to sit down yeah, um, yeah. because I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm a bit anxious about falling over oh yeah my energy levels aren't brilliant and also I'm a bit wobbly and I'm anxious about falling off the stage um my eyes, I mean, you can see these have got a slight tint to these glasses. My eyes are really light sensitive, which isn't ideal, <laughs> given that I stare into some lights for a living. Um, so I have to wear sort of slightly tinted glasses on stage. Um, so these are, so, so before I think I would describe myself as, as quite a bombastic physical performer. Like I, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't like the Evans or anything, but yeah. But, um, I was quite Simon at the comedy store described me as lurchy, which I think, uh, <laughs> which I don't think he was trying to necessarily compliment me on. Um, but um, I'll take that. I was kind of quite sort of very much on the front foot, you know. And um, and I think that's that's changed completely, you know. That's so so, and that's very interesting to go from being someone who was quite physical to do who might move around, might do a bit of goose stepping or whatever yeah, um, yeah. to have gone to being really quite stationary has completely changed the way I'm yeah. now writing it's completely changed some of the routines that I used to do and how I now do them and it's completely changed almost the, the way the audience I think I, what the most immediate change is that I find the audience are, are a lot more relaxed because right. I think I'm a lot more passive you know, I think maybe if I was more physical and more, they, they felt a little bit more like, oh, he's going to ask us something at any point or he's going to, you know, he's, we're under attack slightly. And I think now, but the, the sort of, if there's a sort of slower, calmer aspect to someone, I think when they sit down, there's a sort of pensive storytelling feel to it. This is my perception of it anyway. Um, and this is kind of what people have sort of told me um, when they've watched it. And I've, I'm really enjoying that. You know, because it's quite new to me uh, and I don't really understand quite why that I understand maybe slightly bits of why that works and why mm. it doesn't. I'm exploring what does and doesn't work in that scenario. Um, you know, as an example, I was writing this morning. I've got a routine where I do goose step in it. <laughs> now, I'm obviously prob I can't do that. And then I was thinking, well, could I do it? Could, could I for like for 10 seconds goose step? And I'm thinking, yeah, definitely. As long as I didn't fall off the end of a stage that I don't see. So if it's a big enough stage, I have, yeah. the, physical energy. Yeah, I have the physical energy to do that. And that might look really good in contrast to what I've just been doing. Or also it's like, can I do that routine without doing the goose step? Will it, will it suffer or will it be better? You know, or can I think of something else to do instead that isn't quite so unsophisticated or whatever. You know, maybe it need maybe it needs the goose stepping and I need to do it, or maybe I can do it without that and think of mm. an alternative that makes it better, or maybe it just isn't and I can't do that routine. But I'm kind of interesting to it's interesting to explore that. That's the one bit of that answer to your question. It's yeah. stylistically changed me. Mm. Then I've also got a lot of 
material about my where I've been, particularly over the last year. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I think we've not worked for sort of 15 months, as of a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not going, oh, poor yeah, old yeah. But, yeah. um, you know, we haven't. And, and a lot of people will kind of, you know, you would think, oh, that's a really good chance to sort of write loads of new material. And, and I think, and I think a lot, I've spoken to a lot of comedians and I know a lot of them really struggled to do anything towards stand up. They either couldn't do it or they yeah. saw other sort of creative outlets, be it kind of, uh, you know, writing a book or, or, or doing artwork or, or, or cooking, number of things, but not really stand up. You sort of almost, you know, you sort of need a reason to go out and do it. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't revise for an exam if you haven't got an exam. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that, so I didn't, not a lot. I think a lot of people didn't write that much stand up, me included, until I had a stroke. And then suddenly I was really like kind of inspired. You know, I felt like really, I still do feel very evangelical to talk about it. And things, some of the stuff, because of some of the situations I found myself in, because of a, a very extreme illness or whatever, yeah, yeah. Are, they are by definition sort of ludicrous and kind of unusual and therefore presumably of, of interest to people because it's an experience that most people don't have. But sort of, so as an example, Paula, you know, like I went to the toilet on the stroke when I was in the hospital one night to, to go to the loo yeah. in my, you know, pyjamas got into the toilet but because I'm half you know not seeing very well I sort of sat, and the toilet was on the right hand side sat down and sat on a man who was already <laughs> on the toilet right right you know so I'm too blind to see him and he's too blind to see me sitting down right so so you know it's it's an immediately a kind of and I had that you know that eureka <laughs> moment I was saying to you earlier of like on the one hand you're just going Christ and on the other hand you're it doesn't take me more than about a split second to go this is going to be funny when I retell it, you know. So, so how did that you know, play out, by the way? <laughs> well, I mean, in, in a brilliant British kind of, I'm frightfully sorry, Just, like, <laughs> you apologised. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> profusely apologising. Rather than, you know, you would think it would be like, fuck off, that man, you know, like, like that. <laughs> but it wasn't like that at all. I was profusely apologising. He was profusely apologising, and all we could hear was a couple of kind of. Um, you know, uh, nurses outside the door, presumably laughing their asses off at these two pillocks <laughs> floundering around, you know, you know, I sort of, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I have mentioned that a couple of times on stage, but I think it's, it, it's, it's inherently a funny scenario that needs to be talked about, you know? And so, so for me, I'm kind of like, and a lot of people as well, I mean, I'm particularly evangelical about people really think that stroke happens to kind of older people who are mm. kind of one foot in the grave. And, and it, in my experience, well, my own personal experience, and then having been around stroke people and stroke survivors for a number of years, you realise that it happens to kids, it happens to yeah. people in teenagers, it happens to very young people who are fit, and people don't realise that. And I, I'm, I feel quite sort of, as I say, I feel quite evangelical about talking about it on stage. Yeah, I think it's funny. I think that it needs to be talked about because people, that there's a lack of awareness maybe. And I think it's kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning, I think if you if you can be generous and tell your sort of your real story, I think people can really respond. And I'm hopefully not doing that in a glib. Yeah. Oh, aren't people, aren't people who've had strokes funny? I don't mean that. Of course, I don't mean no, that. Exactly. I, I yeah. certainly don't. I'm, you know, I'm trying to be as sympathetic, but also it's my experience and I own it. So I can 
talk about that. And hopefully if I get it right, it's not, well, either mawkish or depressing yeah. or it's being flippant and glib. It's, it's a, it's a funny, it's a fun, I'm a comedian. I am a comedian. I'm not trying to, like, I'm not a, um, a campaigner for the Stroke Association. So I don't yeah. need to impart yeah. loads of info. I am a comic, but that's my primary job is to make people laugh. But if I can make people laugh and have some, have some through line, some story, some sort of, um, I love the same message, but like, yeah. I don't mean message, but just have some sort of narrative and some content. If I can do that as a byproduct, then I'm, I'm kind of, I feel like I'm onto something and I feel when I get it right, audiences respond to that. Yeah. Um, yeah. As a comedian, do you think there's anything that's, that is taboo as a, as a subject to, to talk about on stage? I mean, obviously you're talking about from experience and stuff. Yeah. But um, would you, do you think there's anything, anything now that's, uh, well, I think in theory, I mean, let, let, you know, I mean, you know, we we are in the eye of the Dave Chappelle storm, aren't we? Well, uh, currently, yeah. uh, that will that will blow over. There'll be another person to deride. I, I, I mean, and I don't, I, I don't know about Dave Chappelle whether he's right or whether he's wrong. Sometimes mm. I think he's right. Sometimes I think he's wrong. I don't, I, you know, it's such a toxic thing. I don't really want to get drawn on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think in theory, no, I don't think anything should be off the table, but. Firstly, have you got, have I got as a comic, the skill set to ride that rather rope, you know, that, that, that is a, that's not a level, that's not an easy, you know, if you're going to talk about the Holocaust or rape yeah, or yeah. trans or whatever, yeah. um, that's a rough, that's, that, that is a white water raft experience. And have you got the skills to do it? And probably most people haven't, you know, like so why the other thing as well is like you know I'm not going to talk about trans people because I'm not I don't I know a few but not you know I haven't really I have no experience of it so what why would I talk about it yeah yeah um but a trans person of course they're going to talk about it I would be offended if someone got up there and talked and made jokes about strokes if they hadn't had my experience yeah had no information for obvious reasons but 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 then but then you know if they go oh, but my father had a stroke and it was couched in that and he was talking about his experiences of dealing with his father and then some funny scenario like him going to the toilet and sitting on a bloke that tempers it doesn't it so suddenly you do have a bit more license for for someone who hasn't had a stroke yeah to talk yeah. about stroke because maybe their father or their wife or their best mate has had a stroke so you it's a really i don't think there's a finite so you sort of go like all right i shouldn't make jokes about rape definitely but another person maybe who has had that has has had that experience god forbid are you going to tell him or her that she shouldn't make jokes about yeah rape? yeah yeah i i, I certainly as a as a comic and a, and a teacher of comedy i would encourage them to make not not jokes about it but, but talk about it because i think it's like it happens. It needs to be yeah. discussed. I think, and I think, you know, comedy clubs are places where I'm a massive fan of that sort of art should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. You know, I, I, I that's me. And I, and, I'm, and I know currently in 2021, there's a lot of people who massively disagree with that, mm. but I'm not one of them, but you also have to understand that your audiences have certain sensibilities and you also have to understand that you've got to get it damn right. And I think you've also got to understand that a lot of people will try and 
interrupt and are you going to get through that routine about it without being interrupted by someone even if they are wrong and got the wrong end of the stick um you know it's a really tricky thing i think that i would say in theory yeah anyone should be there's no subject that's off limits but well yeah but or, or yeah. what i just read. just handle it carefully <laughs> yeah handle it carefully and also so that sort of you know going back to what i was saying don't try and be eddie Izzard. yeah try and be yeah. Marcus Bourbon. Yeah. marcus yeah. Bourbon has had a stroke Marcus Berman did grow up with a Church of England vicar for a father. I feel I can talk about it. Marcus Berman didn't grow up with an, with an imam for a father, so I shouldn't talk about Islam because I don't know anything about Islam. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, it's not yeah, like yeah. I'm saying, oh, Islam should be off limits for me to talk about, but why would I talk about it? I don't know anything. I know the sort of headline, Daily Mail, all Muslims are terrorists kind of bullshit. I don't know much more than that. So if any... Anything I'm going to say about it is going to be pretty ill-informed or doesn't come under scrutiny. If, you know, if, someone, if someone stands up and objects to what I say about Christianity, yeah. Catholicism, although I wasn't grow, growing up Catholic, I grew up, my mother was at a Catholic school, my father, we, you know, there was a lot of inter-church dealings, so I grew up around Catholics and I know a lot about the Catholic Church. I am happy to defend my position on my atheism, my anti-Christian anti my anti-catholicism because i feel i know what i'm talking about so i would stand my ground and i would make jokes about it and if someone gets up and goes you can't say that about catholicism i would go i think i can because i know x y i know all of the facts that you know if i got up and said something about islam and someone went you can't say that about islam i'd be like you're right i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> you're not really <laughs> you know what i mean so so i wouldn't i wouldn't do it but then you know as an example, I've got, an, I've got a student who is a Muslim. So, of course, you should be talking about it. Because yeah. there's, there's some funny shit about everything. You know, there's funny things about being gay. There's funny things about being a Muslim. There's funny things about being a stroke survivor. There's funny things about being a woman. There's funny things about being a man. Um, all of these things are funny if they're done with a certain sense of kind of, um, well, simpatico, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so who would have been your your comedy heroes growing up? You and I talk about comedy from a different from a different time, and obviously yeah. like the seventies and stuff were a, a totally different ball game. Yeah, well, I, as I said, I didn't grow up sort of being a. I didn't grow up wanting to be a stand up, so I didn't yeah. really. I wasn't. I wasn't really aware of stand up till Eddie Murphy's Raw or Delirious in the Eight, which I absolutely loved. But prior to that, Richard, prior to that, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that's the interesting thing, because, you know, because I, I saw Eddie Izzard, then subsequently saw Richard Pryor and gone and sort of went, oh, this is a really bad imitation of Eddie Murphy. And you go, oh, you've got this the wrong way around. <laughs> um, of course. So I really liked uh, Mike. I suppose my, my comedy hero would have been Ronnie Barker, Porridge. Yes, yes, yes. Or Peter Sellers, very much so, or... Blackadder, kind of, no, that's of the young ones, not nine o'clock news. Yeah. Ben Eltonly kind of era written stuff, not Ben Elton so much as a, as a stand up himself. And I don't mean yeah. that in disrespect, that doesn't really chime with me. But a lot of what he wrote, the young ones, bottom, those sort of things. Uh, I was never really Python. It wasn't really my era. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of, I th- I'd say probably, probably the first ones would be like, Ronnie Barker porridge, two Ronnies to an extent, although not quite so much. And Peter Sellers, I you know, I loved all of the kind of the Pink Panther stuff, particularly. And then, you know, which is the sort of I suppose the more famous end of Peter Sellers. And I think then you get 
into seeing some of the other stuff that he did that's a little bit more obscure and Dr. Strangelove, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I suppose both of them were very chameleon-esque, you know, in their own ways. You know, Ronnie Barker was, do you know what I mean, the the amount of characters and different personas he had. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But and then but comic actors as opposed to you know none yeah. of those are stand up. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as I said, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't really know anything about stand up, and um, and so I suppose yeah, th- those were my comedy heroes. And I suppose, I suppose, um, I mean, I do like good pun, and I think that probably does. There is that tradition within Ronnie Barker and and the young ones, and well, not so much young ones, but maybe like Blackadder, of that kind of word play and pun that I enjoy. I mean, Blackadder had so much floral language, didn't it? That I definitely responded to. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing with like the two Ronnies, you know, it was, it was a lot of double entendre. <laughs> I mean, so many double entendre. I mean, that's exactly that. I mean, I'm, I'm, the, the classic kind of fork handle sketch is, is, is exactly that, you know, and though those weren't racy double entendres, um, yeah, but, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, and then there's a lot of I like again. My father had that, particularly for a vicar. He had that sort of British Benny Hill, Fanar Fanar, ooh matron, said the actress the, to the bishop the chem- kind the of. Memory. <laughs> yeah, that sort of stuff, and you know Kenny Everett, and and I know it's you know that, that a lot of that doesn't bear sort of scrutiny currently, um, but I think a lot of it, some some of it does. I think some of some of that kind of like. I think uh, British people do enjoy a sort of carry-on, yeah. ooh matron, double entendre moment. I worked in this. I worked in this uh, orange juice factory. We, we, we literally squeeze the oranges, and every morning we'd sort of go in really early. So we were always like, you know, like five a.m. to to squeeze the oranges. And this, the machine had this massive pipe. It was a huge pipe, right? And partly we were delirious with kind of kind of tiredness. But every morning we had to basically take the massive pipe off and take it outside the factory to be cleaned. Every morning someone would go, uh, we'd pick up the pipe and go, take this up the back end, would you? And it never, <laughs> it never failed to, like every morning for two months or, when I, or however long I worked there. We would just find this hilarious, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I think British people do like that. You know, they do like jokes about, I don't think they like, you know, I don't, I don't want to be like overly smutty or you can be laddie or whatever. There's definitely poor elements of that um, and, and nasty elements of that or sexist elements of that. But I think there's also a joy of kind of, you know, slightly buxom women in uh, and vicars that I kind of... <laughs> Think is funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. What is it with the vicar? What is it with the vicars? Well, maybe it's the, uh, maybe it's uh, because of my background, but I think it's the actress, the actress to the bishop. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I was trying to write actually this morning. I was thinking about that, about how the actress to the bishop is a kind of mainstay of British comedy, and how that's so problematic now because, of course, you can't say actress; you have to say actor. <laughs> the bishop, the bishop could be female. Yeah. Bishop could also be gay. Um, <laughs> you know, um, the, the, the actor could be female, but trans. So there's all sorts of, you know, this whole thing is kind of like, you can't say <laughs> the actress to the bishop has lost its, uh, <laughs> you know, it now has to be, said the, said the actor who may or may not be uh, um, born, in, born a man, 
said to the bishop, who may or may not be, you know, uh, <laughs> heteronormative, and he's like, just doesn't have the same chime to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, try doing that in America. You know? <laughs> <laughs> try doing it here, probably. Oh, uh, man. So let's talk a little bit about music now. Yeah. So have there been any big music loves in your life, be it an artist or a band? Yeah. Well, I suppose Bob Marley, reggae. Mm-hmm. So my, I think my first interest became like maybe punk, but more like post-punk because I'm not old, young enough. To, well, yeah, I didn't really I hit that era. But like more, so I'm more the two-tone sort of specials, madness. Yeah, yeah. Sort of the tail end of punk and then I think from that which I just loved I loved I still do love all that sort of two-tone stuff um mm-hmm. and I think from that realized that a lot of that was born out of kind of you know old school traditional Jamaican yeah. star and reggae and sort of started to do that my sister was quite a fan of of all of that and my, my older sister and kind of got me into that so I've always had a big big soft spot for for Bob Marley and for reggae and then I've also got quite a soft spot for fairly loud and abrasive guitar music so so I'm trying to think of sort of people like Jane's Addiction was a big influence for me I like the kind of guitar Jane's Addiction quite interesting thing because I think they're both guitar-y and laddie but they're also quite feminine in their kind Mm. of you know a lot lot of kind of makeup and cross-dressing and some very kind of uh, the imagery is often isn't certainly not sort of macho like a kind of a lot of metal stuff to be um I loved all that I really loved rap from a kind of, I think, because the sort of poet in me was interested in rhythm and meter and mm. kind of um, the drum beats and stuff. And from so, so those were very, I think those were very influential. I mean, I think, I mean, I think I'm more interest, interested and influenced by music than I am by stand-up. Even now, as I said, I don't tend to put on comedy specials. I'll do a few but I'm far rather listen to music and I get more inspiration out of listening to music than a stand-up special or whatever. Uh, I think, mm. and I think I've always, yeah, I still do. Uh, from the energy of that. I mean, I think when I, as an example of, um, do you know the Hive song, Main Offender? Yeah, yeah. You know? It's like, it's like that, sort of, that must've come out when I was not too far into my career anyway. And yeah. um, I absolutely loved that song, and I still do. And I thought, I want to do the same thing comedically mm. that they do with that song. Yeah, with yeah, the, yeah. The pace, the energy, the anger, the light and dark, the sort of full-on, you know, the sort of the sort of rocket ship energy that it has. Just woof. And I thought... That's what I want to do. Um, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not saying that's what I managed to do, but that's certainly what I, that's what I wanted to achieve. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Of like to get the same excitement from, if I'm getting that excitement from a song, you know, I, I, I want to try and at least attempt to get a fraction of that in my art form. So I thought I very much about that pace mm. and the kind of bang, bang, bang of it. Um, slight machismo attached to it it is all about pace isn't it it's about pace and rhythm rhythm. it's not really melody um like a lot of those punk songs and i suppose that's a punk pong or a post-punk song neo-punk song 
it's not a pretty little ditty. The lyrics aren't like, oh my God, what a revelation. You know, there's not Bob Dylan. It's about pace and energy and anger and style. Yeah. I, I liked that um, aspect of it. I still do. But it's interesting because going back to what I'm saying about, you know, post-stroke sitting down, I've changed that I, partly because I no longer can. Yeah, yeah. And also because I think comedy's changed. You know, comedy used to be very alpha male. Yes. And it's yes. changing. It's, it's, you know, different voices are doing it, which is, you know, which is, which is great. But I think the kind of alpha male style of doing it doesn't resonate so, so much as it used to. You know, I think audiences, audience, audiences have changed, changed, sensibilities have changed and so forth. I think, you know, I make no apology for doing that when I started because a yeah. lot of gigs were really rough and you had oh. to outrun the audience, you know, you had to outbox the audience. Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, but I think that's not the case so much anymore. I don't, I think audiences are a bit more benign and that, that slightly contradicts what I said before about British audiences, but, but they are certainly more benign life than they were, than they used to be, I think. And um, so I think, you know, if, if I started comedy now, I'm not sure I would want to, to be the hives, you know, but um, I, don't, yeah. I don't know who I would want to be, but uh, I haven't really thought about that. Uh, maybe Bob Marley, you know, and that sort of yeah, yeah. Still got the same, has the same sort of power and message, but isn't quite so on the front foot. Yeah, you could, you could be like the new Dave Allen, you know. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I used to live very near Dave Allen. I'd oh, see wow. Dave Allen quite a lot. And, I, and he, my father really liked Dave Allen. And I always despite how irreverent Dave Allen would be, my father kind of enjoyed that, I think. I think he sort of felt that he was being irreverent rather than irreligious, uh, which is what I hope to be, if, if you understand the difference, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, but, yeah. But, um, oh, no, he totally went against the grain, didn't he? Yeah, no, especially, especially then, back in the whatever mm. 70s. So, oh, yeah, But yeah. I also, I think I did, you know, and I've got this in my mind's eye, I sort of hope I look like Dave Allen, you know, <laughs> in the way in how loose and cool he was, sort of smoking a cigarette and drinking a whiskey. If I could get a fraction of that kind of cool, I'd be very pleased. I'm certainly, I'm certainly trying to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could yeah. be something to, to aim for. Definitely something, well, absolutely, definitely something to aim for. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. I mean, gig-wise, um, have you been to, has there been a memorable gig? Who's the, who's the most amazing uh, band you've seen live? Uh... So let's think. I saw the James Addiction in Amsterdam when I was about eighteen, and it was it was, inc- it, was in, it was incredible. Um, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, right, I saw okay. again. They their first like Red Hot Chili Peppers. Now I don't really like, but when they first came out, like in the eighties, yeah. they were very, really kind of punky. And uh, do, do you know their early sort of stuff? It was sort of pre. Well, their first guitarist was a guy called Hillel Slovak, and they they were much more sort of punky really oh, right, okay. and, um, and they they toured in about 1988 really small venues and I think I, I think in retrospect I was probably in the middle of a nervous breakdown at the time but I saw a, I saw a left university under a slight cloud not bec- and, and it coincided with the Chili Peppers touring in the UK so I went to see quite a few of their dates and the again that's sort of going back to that slightly the hives thing the lyrics are twaddle um, <laughs> and they still are. I mean, I think, I, th- I think, you know, I, I, Anthony Kiedis, I still think is an idiot. Um, but so he can't say so these are really small venues, you know, like really small venues. Like if you think of like, 
I mean, like, for, you know, if you think of the behemoth that, that, that the Chili Peppers are, I know they're a stadium band, but I mean, we're talking, you know, clubs that are, you know, the international, the, the, the into the pub in Dublin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, rooms not much bigger than that when yeah. they came to their first tour. So maybe twice as big as that. But, you know, you're talking like 100 people in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, not, not a massive stadium at all. Tiny rooms where you can touch them, like, like you can at the international. You literally touch the band, you know. And um, Anthony Kiedis, he, ca- he, he ran on and he, he grabbed the microphone and did a kind of cartwheel. And this is him, you know, and he's dressed, he's got a sock on his cock, which they, you know, famously <laughs> always yeah, wore. Yeah, so yeah. you've got a naked, tattooed, long-haired man who legs it on and sort of does a stage dive, grabs the microphone <laughs> and does a sort of backflip sort of cartwheel and lands on his, lands on his feet and starts rapping. And I thought, that's entertainment, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> um, that was pretty memorable. Um, who else? I mean, Lee Scratch Perry, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Roots Maneuver, mm-hmm. fantastic. You know, I've seen both of those people actually. And well, Gil Scott, Gil Scott Heron, Roots Maneuver, yeah. Lee Scratch Perry, people that I've seen numerous times yeah. be either like transcendental or absolutely crap for reasons I think we all know why. And uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, interesting and, and, and interesting, uh, interesting to see them in all those be, 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 nah, be sublime, be yeah. appalling. Um, yeah. And it's always weird seeing a band, you know, when they're first starting out. I mean, I saw Muse oh, years, you know, late 90s. I saw it in a, yeah. in a pub. In, me too, me too. In, in Newport. Yeah. Um, and there was literally, what, 10 people, 10 people there. Yeah. And, you know, they were just standing around, just chatting with people. And Good now they're just playing, <laughs> you know, no. Wembley. It's funny you say that because so did I, weirdly. My, oh, my wow. friend was in a band. Yeah. My friend was in a band. And um, I think they supported Muse or not have even been the other way around. Muse yeah. supported them in like a big pub, but the kind of, you know, the kind of function room of a pub. But, you know, it's exactly not the stadium that you would now see them in. Yeah. And I, funnily, I don't, I don't remember being that interested. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of weird, isn't it? Weird. Um, I like their I first mean, couple of singles, but now, he, I don't know, he just kind of, I don't know, it's just like a, bit, a whiny, it's a, I don't know it's what it is. a kind of caricature of himself, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, a, little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Plus the drummer was really disingenuous. My friend's band, they had a female drummer who was A, a female drummer, and B, the wife of my best friend. So, and he was really dismissive of her. Like, wow. Female drummers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it was like, I hate you. And uh, so that was unfortunate. Um, I'm trying to think who else, who was really, really kind of... I saw, I saw Susie and the Banshees at the Royal oh. Albert Hall. Oh, when wow. I been about 14. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. I mean, like, because of that space, of course. Um, I saw Zig Zig Sputnik at the Royal Albert Hall. Which was incredible so as well because mental. I all, yeah, I know it wasn't at all because they all dressed up like you know they all like like Zig Zig Sputnik as you'll remember. They had this huge bank of like computer screens that was just you know I mean now you see it all over the place, but at the time I'd never seen it before. I've kind yeah, of like yeah. small smallest computer screens making up an entire kind of cinemascopic kind of screen. Yeah, yeah, you see it now a lot. But at the, day, at the time, I don't think I'd ever seen it before. 
and the imagery that they had on stage, you know, that kind of um, F-111 shoot it up and then there'd be footage from the Gulf War or whatever it was, or pre-Gulf War, actually, you know, whatever it would have been. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and it was mind-blowing, you know, and again, if pitted against the Royal Albert Hall, um, it was a, a true experience. And I also think I was, I was sort of been about like 14, 13, maybe so young, you know, my parents or my friend of mine's parents drove us there. My father was the chaplain of a private school in Hertfordshire. So, so we, we, I didn't come from money, but I come, you know, I went to private school and we yeah. lived on private school. So very sheltered private school sort of upbringing. Yeah. In one sense. And then to go see Zig Zig Sputnik or, and I remember, I remember there was a guy sniffing glue <laughs> out of the back, you know, not old school uh, kind of. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing him at the beginning and he had like a really massive Mohican. And I think for, at that point when I was like, little private school boy thinking oh you're cool you're really cool you look amazing you look really 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 sort of like uh subversive and then I remember seeing him coming out more or less in the same position and he looked so off his face and kind of I think his sort of mohican had drooped and he kind of I was like oh, well there's a really really good advert for not doing glue so that, <laughs> that was a good that, that was an epiphany moment yeah <laughs> so that was very that was very influential for not not necessarily because of the band on stage but... <laughs> don't do drugs kids <laughs> don't do drugs well don't do glue anyway at or least. Glue. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh man so yeah. i mean what's next for you marcus are you have you got any tours planned or gigs planned or i'm doing uh more jason manford t- tour support next year i'm sort of hoping because they just they just i just learned today actually from a friend of mine that you don't have to quarantine to go to australia anymore oh wow which means that going to australia is a lot more feasible and cheap i would do i mean the last 10 years prior to lockdown i mean in fact i was in melbourne when we had to come home you know i was in the middle of a two-month stint in australia and we had to come home halfway through because of COVID in the, what, 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 yeah, last year. And um, I've been going to Australia for two months, either or Australia and or New Zealand for two months of a year. I was really enjoying that. Hopefully I might be heading down that way um, next year with fingers crossed. And on that note, thank really you nice so you. much for chatting with me today, Marcus. It's been lovely. Not at all. Nice to speak to you. Very, lots of very interesting things to talk about fantastic um,